Today on City Cats Philly. If you ever watch local TV news, some of the most covered stories involve violent crime. There's a phrase used in the business, if it bleeds, it leads. But I'm speaking with a reporter who looked into this news format. Why does TV coverage focus on these stories? How does it impact communities? And can local media do it better? It's Monday, January 30th, 2023. I'm Trinae and this is CityCast Philly. Layla Jones, you're the economic equity reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and you looked into how television news is made. There's a formula, right? Tell us what we see. Yeah, sure. Um, so I wrote this piece about television news mm-hmm. when I was reporting for the Inquirer's More Perfect Union project. And basically what I found was that the television, local TV news, used basically this kind of script that ended up criminalizing Black people in Black communities. So the crime narrative script kind of has two main elements. It's that crime is violent. Mm-hmm. And it's that the perpetrators of crime are not white. So you mostly see uh, Black people and other people of color, uh, depending on where you are in the country, being the perpetrators of crime. They have different blocks. So this is what people are seeing that maybe they're not thinking of. The first block is always shown as like the most important. So the anchor will come on and say maybe the big story on Action News is, and more likely than not, that might be a big crime disaster or violence story. There was a study done in Philadelphia specifically in the 90s, and it showed that in that first block, 54% of you know crime stories appeared there, and that more than half of those stories were murder, even though murder was only, I think, like 1% or 1.5% of all crime in Philadelphia anyways. But Layla, let's back it up a bit. This format, right, has Philly roots. The origins of Eyewitness News, which a lot of people know as Channel 3, and Action News, which a lot of us know as 6ABC or Channel 6, it it started with Philly news stations. Yeah, so in 1965 at Channel 3, um, when the television channel used to be KYW, there was a news director named Al Primo, and he is the one who began the eyewitness news format here in Philadelphia. Um, what he did was learn that he could put a bunch of different reporters out on different scenes with different beats and have them appear on television to tell their own stories. Prior to him really creating what we know to be news right now with reporters out in the street, it was mostly just an anchor who sat behind a desk and kind of read the news as if it was on the radio, but with a television. And so he brought on a male and female anchor and created that kind of like jokey banter that we all know now. Right, right. Um, and that was kind of what Eyewitness News became. They obviously, you know, shot to the top of the ratings here locally. In response to Eyewitness News, which started in 1965, in 1970, Channel 6 started Action News. And it was much faster with a lot less depth and more emphasis on crime than eyewitness news. So I talked to Vernon Odom, who, you know, was on Action News. He's a veteran reporter, yeah. A veteran Black reporter um, who was on Action News for decades. And he said 
Action News was referred to as funny, bloody, and quick. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll watch him die. So these were the two newscasts that were going. They both came out of Philadelphia. And eventually, because of the success of these, the person who started Action News, Frank Maggot, became a consultant. And they went to stations around the country, more than 200, and kind of spread this, this winning news format formula, which really relied a lot on crime and disaster coverage that criminalized Black people to get attention. So what actually drew viewers to these stories and who were their target audience? Well, their target audience was, um, and this is something you can kind of see from the commercials that played at the time, it was really suburbanites and white audiences in those suburbs, especially in, in Philadelphia suburbs. Um, So I think one thing that we wrote in the piece was that kind of in between like these stories um, in the news about, you know, an African-American murder suspect or a victim of a violent burglary on the news were these commercials about like Ethan Allen um, sofa bed sets. And like we basically were trying to say that the advertisements and the the people who appeared in these ads looked nothing like the people who appeared in the news stories. So what drew them was kind of the same thing that draws people to, you know, CSI or Law and Order SVU. It was that drama that real people were impacted, that it was high emotion and that it was scary. And so people would watch it and they would be, you know, entertained, but also also feel like they were getting information. Mm. People have called it infotainment. And so in lieu of kind of telling news as it was actually happening, right, they kind of told it in a way that would be the most interesting, the most engaging, make people feel the most scared. And, you know, a result of that was studies have shown that people who watch specifically local television news were much more likely to think they were at risk for some sort of mm-hmm. violent crime, even mm-hmm. if that type of crime wasn't prevalent at all, you know, in their neighborhoods and communities. And just as much as this format drew in viewers, those suburbanites, as you mentioned, it also impacted communities and often amplified negative stereotypes. Was there any pushback or did anyone speak against this format? Yeah, definitely. So there was pushback from particularly Black media makers and reporters at the time from really kind of the beginnings of these formats. Um, So if I could backtrack a little bit. With Eyewitness News, Al Primo brought on, I believe, Philadelphia's first African-American news reporter on the television. And that was... Trudy Haynes, right? Yes, Miss Trudy Haynes. Mm-hmm. And um, she, you know, was a pioneer in Philadelphia for that. And right. Al Primo said he did that because when he had to meet with community leaders as part of his job, it was a requirement, which he said, like, was annoying, basically. But what he learned was that community leaders wanted to see more Black people on the news telling their story. And so I talked to Miss Trudy Haynes, and what she said was that she always tried to portray the Black and Brown story on the news. So even if it meant she went into her editor and handpicked the audience shots or the um, shot live shots of whatever was happening outside, she made sure that there were Black people 
in those shots just to show that, you know, we do ordinary things. We're outside, you know, having fun. Do you think that took a that took courage for her to speak on that, to to give that pushback? Well, she didn't make it seem that way. Um, she really just kind of was really matter of fact about it. Um, I spoke with her, mm-hmm. you know, and I asked her, did she think that what she did caused institutional change at, at Channel 3? And she basically said, you know, I don't know if the institution felt the same way I did, but I just tried to stay at the station for as long as possible so that she, by herself, could kind of take on this mission of humanizing Black people on the news. So Vernon Odom definitely said something similar, that, you know, he had the knowledge from his family to provide context about different issues that you may be telling a crime story, but he could give, you know, maybe a social context or socioeconomic context. And so it really was in these stations, Black reporters taking on that extra step themselves because they had that knowledge as Black people. Outside of the news stations, there were different reporters like Lynn Washington and others who were really pushing for more Black representation in the reporters on TV, but also in the producers and in the editors. So really just hiring more Black people in general. But Lynn told me that eventually they realized once some of those hires were made that because of how the format was, it didn't necessarily change anything. Interesting. So there may be more diverse voices at the table, but it still was a part of the business to to kind of follow this format. Interesting. So in your piece, you say that in 2020, there was a call to action for change. Can you tell us what executives did and did that move the needle in any positive way? Yeah. (laughs) You know, in 2020, a lot of people didn't say a lot of things about racial justice. And some of the things that happened at the stations was ABC hired um, Taronda Thomas to become their first reporter that's dedicated to a specialized beat about race and, and equity and justice, I believe. Right, right. So I also spoke with kind of like grassroots media makers and people who are on the ground in neighborhoods like Saja Blackwell. She goes by Purple Queen and she runs PQ1 Radio. And yes. she told me that she's also noticed since 2020 that different stations are coming out more to neighborhoods to cover not just the violence or crime or negative news, but to cover more positive things, you know, solutions-oriented stories. So I think there is an intention at these big stations to do better, but there also um, needs to be an acknowledgement of, you know, the format. It doesn't allow for a lot of follow-up. And so still kind of the ball gets dropped on some of those important community stories or additional context, even for those crime and violence stories that the news so often does. Yeah, a few weeks back here on CityCast Philly, we talked about that study that came out of Temple University Hospital about how harmful gun violence coverage can be for victims. So, Layla, how do we, as media professionals, make news less dramatic, traumatic, and really make sure we get it right for our community? Um, Yeah, I think that that's a really complicated question because I think that just like crime coverage in general is complicated because we can say like, oh, murder only happens 1% of the time, but that 1% of people 
are important and their family members often do want their stories to be told in the media. And so there's always this balance of, you know, not wanting to spotlight only negative and crime news in Black communities, but also wanting to honor the victims and their families by kind of telling those stories. Mm -hmm. I feel like there are a lot of groups and organizations who are dedicated to working on how best to tell less traumatic and less dramatic crime coverage. But I definitely think that one step is to make sure that you're you're getting in contact with and taking the time to talk to the victims and their families. There was a study, I think, from the 90s that said 81% of crime stories relied on law enforcement as their primary source. Mm-hmm. And I think there are conversations in the news space now about kind of moving away from that, about not relying on law enforcement as your first and primary source. But that would require more time to get into neighborhoods, to talk to people and neighbors and families and maybe wait until those families are ready to talk about the trauma that they've just endured with their loved one. Mm-hmm. So, Layla, in this larger conversation, we're talking about also who gets to make these decisions, right? And I'm a Black woman and I'm a journalist myself and I work with a team that's led by women and historically our voices were not in the forefront of the decision-making when it came to news or when it comes to news. And, you know, as I reflect on my responsibility as a journalist, you know, I'm thinking like, how do I make sure or check myself that I'm not going to get this wrong or that, you know, we're not going to get this wrong and we're not repeating histories. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you feel about that? Yeah, it's really hard. I think it's pretty complex. And yeah, it's just a lot going on. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like also like television news. I don't know about you in this podcasting and audio space, but I think just in general, it, every job I've been to, there's still a format that we have to try to stick to. And that doesn't always allow for the most time to dig into different things. And that just requires like potentially slowing down and rethinking how you do like a lot of your coverage. And it's whether or not mainstream media is going to take the time to actually do that. For sure. Layla Jones, the economic equity reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Thank you so much for joining me on CityCast Philly. Thank you. We'll have Layla's full story in our show notes. And here's what else Philly's talking about. We're going to the Super Bowl again. Congrats to the Philadelphia Eagles. In other news, the city is expanding its Right to Counsel initiative. According to the Inquirer, renters living in the 19134 and 19144 zip codes who are facing eviction will now be able to get free legal representation, Find out more in our Hey Philly newsletter. And Cambodian and Southeast Asian vendors will soon become a permanent part of FDR Park in South Philly. According to WHYY, Philly's Department of Commerce gave a $100,000 grant to the Cambodian Association of Greater Philadelphia to develop a marketplace at the park. That's all for today here on CityCast Philly. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and hit that subscribe button. Be sure to sign up for our morning newsletter too. It's called Hey Philly. 
on tomorrow's episode, we're talking about our traffic nightmares. Stay tuned. Bye. Bye.